people pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. you that the man who is coming to this year's festival will put us back on the literary map. The man that vanished after the publication of his masterpiece. I know who you are. You do? The mysterious Shriver. Shriver? Shriver? Shriver, I thought he was dead. Bring Shriver <laughs> and bring a crowd. Because this is the last chance for this festival. They think I'm someone else. I'm not a writer. Everyone's a writer these days. When's the last time you were in a Starbucks? My pleasure to attend your most esteemed and prestigious festival, which is totally my thing. Also is the prize a car. Okay, well. Are you Professor Cleary? So you ready for this? No. Here you are. Here I am. Unless... The real Shriver is still in hiding. Something about you just doesn't smell right. I need a drink. <laughs> I need you to behave for three days. Can you do that? <laughs> and there's no car. Man needs a whiskey. I need you to be the man who wrote one brilliant novel. I'm on to you. I'm not Shriver! have to go to this party. She's the key benefactor for the festival. Mr. Shriver, come and see my library. This does not appear to be a library. Talk to me about literature. Oh. Oh. You! Smoke! That's not good. This is ridiculous. Who is this guy? I'm Shriver. You imposter. You, my friend, are the imposter. This shit is wild. Can you honestly tell me that you haven't been lying to me? That's a complicated question. Would the, uh, Real Shriver, please step forward. Can we please put an end to this buffoonery? What is up with me? Shriver! This is one of the great literary hoaxes of all time. Are you talking about me or him? Hey folks, welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. On this episode, I am talking with Michael Marin. He is the director of A Little White Lie. It's a brand new comedy that is kind of making the rounds out there. Check it out, and I hope you enjoy the interview. I am so curious about your career because you've done a little bit of everything. Can you tell me a little bit about you, and especially even before the screenwriting career, because you, like I said, you've done so much, especially with the reporting. It's not like I, I there were these massive tectonic upheavals in my career. It's that one thing led to another, and very naturally, I found myself. And in a weird way, if I want to, if I want to tell this as a story, it all starts with film. I'm old enough to remember when you just couldn't watch a film anytime you wanted to, and you had to wait for something to show up on TV or end up at a, at a local art house theater or something like that. One of, one of my earliest memories is watching black and white movies on our shitty TV with my dad, and he liked a lot of these, those old sword and sandal films. 
that they used to call him, I don't know, Jason and the Argonauts and stuff like that. But also he loved Bo Jest, the African queen and Zulu and actually both versions of Bo Jest. There's the original one, I'm going to say it was a Clark Gable, it's not Clark Gable, anyways, or the original one and then they remade it with Telly Savalas years later. I got into the whole world of Africa and not Tarzan crap like that. French Foreign Legion always seemed really cool to me. When I graduated from college, didn't worry about getting a job. I just went to the Peace Corps and I went to Africa. And I spent two years there teaching in a rural secondary school in Kenya. And I wanted to stay because I really loved being there. And I worked for years. I worked with a relief organization for a while, driving all over East Africa, doing stuff in Sudan and Ethiopia and Kenya. And then I still wanted to stay. And I got hired by the US government to go to Somalia, where another, I spent another year in 1981. And that's when I started getting very political about what was going on because I really disagreed with American policy. And I wrote a report to the US government at the time just saying, in essence, we're really fucking this country up and we need to stop it. And that segued me into journalism. And that started my writing career. And I always wanted to write anyway. So I started writing op-eds and I started reporting and I ended up back in Africa as a journalist for a long time. There's only so many years you do that. I remember being 35 years old in, in Somalia during the war. Now I went back to Somalia when the Civil War started and being one of the older people in the press corps there. But I stayed and I wrote a book about it called The Road to Hell, which was about American policy, the Cold War. That book got optioned by HBO. I wanted to write the screenplay and HBO originally was like not because I was thinking, yeah, I, I, let me try this other thing. And HBO wasn't so cool about that. They let the option expire. Somebody else optioned that. And then about another year later, when I had given up entirely on writing screenplays, regimes change at these places all the time and they have no institutional memory. A guy named Stephen Tolkien, who's Stephen's well-known writer and director, and he wanted to do about Africa and all of that. And I said, funny thing, I have a story that I wrote. It's fictional, but, it, but I think it'd make a great screenplay. And Stephen read it and he agreed. And he went back to HBO and then they were going to offer me a bunch of money to buy this story. I said, I don't want a bunch of money. I want to write the screenplay. I want to make that jump. And they offered me more money to go away. Stephen stood up for me and said, you know what? I think this guy can write the screenplay. So we, Steve, we together, we wrote this, the, the script. This was 90, I'm going to say 99 or late 98. And that's back when a writer's quote meant something. He used to get quote year quote plus 10. So I got in at Stephen's quote and he'd been doing it for a long time. And that was pretty cool. The movie never got made. There was a, had been another regime change at HBO and they washed everything that the ancient regime had come up with down the toilet. Plus that I think they found the story not uplifting, which is my style. But I went on from there and I got hired to write any number of screenplays. I wrote some on spec, and I actually, very early on, I had adapted a novel. My wife is a novelist. She had actually written a memoir that Reese Witherspoon, before she was Reese Witherspoon, wanted to produce. Reese and I went together to Phoenix Pictures, Mike Metaboy's company, and I thought the producer who was with me was going to pitch it, so Reese and I are sitting on this little couch. You know, everyone has their little chit-chat, and then the producer says, well, Michael's going to talk about the film now. And I was like, I just stepped in it. It was just, it was disgusting. It was like, stumbled through this thing. 
So uh, standing down in the, the lobby with Risa, I'm really apologetic. I'm, we're gonna, I'm gonna have to pull this together. We're gonna go pitch it somewhere else. And Mike Metaboy comes down the elevator. He's building across from us from Sony, and he's got his tennis whites on. He's he's off to play tennis, and he was flirty with Reese, so he slowed down. And I standing in the lobby with the pressure off, just pitched it again. And then he looked at me and said, "All right, I'll call your agent." And they bought it and never made it, which is how it happens. But they came to me with another project that they wanted me to write, and it was an adaptation of another memoir that was by a writer named John Hawkenberry that was about being a paraplegic in, in war zones, and that they thought because of the war zone connection, I would I would get it. But they never pulled the trigger on that, and when their option expired, I re-optioned that book myself. I called Moving Violations, wrote the screenplay on spec, and all. I've sold the screenplay twice. Never got made for I, books, books full of reasons. But it got me into a lot of rooms, and I sold a bunch of scripts to other people. But it, yeah, it got the money was good, but you get tired of doing that. And it was a producer I was with who I'd been working with on producer named Peter Newman, who owned the rights to the Janis Joplin story. I was working on the Janis Joplin pick with Peter. We had Milos Forman attached to direct, and then Zoe Deschanel was going to play Janice. That got bollocks up for reasons I'm way too complicated to get into here. But I brought Peter another script later that I wanted to make, and, I, and we're talking about finding a director, and he finally said to me, why don't you direct it? And I was like, how to direct a movie? So you wrote it. You know what it looks like. You know what's going to happen. It wasn't that that I ended up directing, but I ended up thinking, yeah, I'm getting older. I don't want to do that. I don't want to just keep writing screenplays for money. It's really unsatisfying. And so I wrote a, a script called The Short History of Decay about a young writer dealing with his own failings as a writer and as a human being and uh, dealing with his mother's cancer and his father's stroke. And then there's some autobiographical elements in there. But I put a script that I thought I could make for very little money. And uh, this Got the script out, and Linda Lavin got attached, Harris Eulen, Brian Greenberg, and Benjamin King, who also plays the journalist in A Little White Lie, and shot the film for about $400,000. And it got a lot of love, which was nice. It didn't make any money, but made it easier for me to then, then move on. I know, and it was soon after, right after I had wrapped A Short History of Decay, I walked into a bookstore in Lenox, Massachusetts, and I heard Chris Belden reading. Again, a writer named Chris Belden reading from his book called Shriver, which became a little white lie in the movie. And it took years to get that going. Yeah, what were some of the challenges? Why did it take so long? Of course, there was a global pandemic somewhere in there. It was more than that. First of all, I'm a really slow writer. Many frustrated people will tell you that. I just take my time, I'm easily distracted, and go off on other tangents and start five or six screenplays at the same time put them aside until I can get back to them. But also, you, you can't, I know from being in the business, I, I had a kid in private school and then and, and had life and all of this stuff going on and mortgage and grown-up stuff. Uh, and I, you can't just be focused on one project. I've got to have five or six things in various stages at any time because the lesson, if I hadn't learned the lesson by then, I would have been an idiot that most things, even when they everything is, looks like all the tumblers have fallen into place, that door still ain't going to open for you. So it took me a while to get that out. But when I did get a version of the script out in 2015 or so, it got a lot of love. And suddenly I was getting calls and act from actors, agents. And then there's something that happened. And this was a hard-earned lesson. There, there are producers out there, are people who call themselves producers, 
would tell you they want to make your movie, they have the money, they want to invest in your movie, and they will option, they'll give you a good option money on a script, but it turns out they don't have the money. All they want to do is control the script for a year so they can go out and find the money. That's a lesson to any screenwriter who gets your screen, who gets an option on a script. I There's a lot of people doing that who just simply want to control your script so that they can then try to produce it. And so if they can't produce it after you sign away a year on something like that, if, if they can't find financing, suddenly it's your fault because there's something wrong with your script. It's which and my response to that is that, then why'd you give me $5,000 for it? So I learned that the hard way. I lost a year lost a year doing that. We went through some other things with some other producers on it. We were moving ahead at one point and the script got pre-sold at Cannes as a film. And there was, so there was financing, but the last pieces of that didn't come through. And then finally, somebody came up saying they want to produce the film. We, we, one of the people connected to that producer, not that producer, brought Michael Shannon aboard. And I went into pre-production on it in 2018 in Savannah, Georgia, where we were going to shoot it at a budget that had been given to me. I was with my DP and with a line producer with the budget that we were told we had. Sometime after spending nearly a month doing pre-production and setting it up, the producer who had promised the money said, that's too much money for this film. You have to do it for, you can't do it for X, so you got to do it for Z. It was the end of the year. I refused to renew the option on my script or, or the end. I asked Chris to hold back on renewing the option on the underlying material. The funny little irony about that for me is that had we gone ahead and made that movie, I probably would have died because unbeknownst to me at the time, I had cancer. I started coming around January in the beginning of the year. I started feeling things that I know... If I had been in the middle of continued pre-production and then production and started post-production on a film, I absolutely would have ignored because you can convince yourself of anything. And so I had a great cast attached to it and some really good, good funny people. And when all of that happened, obviously I lost, I had several surgeries and as, as well as really harsh chemo, learned that I looked pretty good bald if I have to. It was on my hair, so that was good. But it took me an entire year to get through that. And we lost the rest of the whole cast, except for Michael Shannon. Michael stuck with the project. I think he very much, will have to answer that himself, but if, when someone asks him, but I think he very much related to the character Shriver. To, he seemed very at home playing it. I didn't have to give him a lot of directing in terms of playing that character. So with Michael as the base at the beginning of 2020, we were rebuilt the cast. Kate Hudson joined, and then things started to click in because with Kate there, the the finance people were ready to pay and we got the money we needed. And then Don Johnson, Zach Braff and Emmett Walsh and everybody else, Divine Joy Randolph is wonderful on it. So Jimmy Simpson, the rest of everybody just showed up. In fact, I was turning people away. We had, I, uh, yeah, we had just went and asked people who wanted to be in this movie. We started shooting late February of 2020. There was an article in the Atlantic Monthly called Cancel Everything that came out early in March. And it was, I remember it was between setups on set and I walk out this, and we were shooting in this office suite and I walk out in the hallway and, and Kate Hudson was standing in the hallway, staring at her phone. And she said, come over here. And I said, yeah. And she said, did you read, I mean, you read this article called cancel everything. And I was there. Yeah, I read it, but I think we're okay. It's going to be fine. There, there are in rapid succession that same afternoon. It's like suddenly Tom Hanks announces he has COVID. And the NBA cancels their season. This is all one wonderful day. 
So we shut down. A couple of the guys on set really were like, yeah, oh, come on. I mean, we're going to power through. Honestly, I probably would have too because I'm an idiot in that way. Uh, yeah, it wasn't going to happen. The Screen Actors Guild got involved and everything, virtually everything. We were one of the last films standing in LA, actually. I think we tried to shoot one more day after that. But a chunk of what we shot that day actually isn't useful. You could see there was suddenly everybody we were wiping down all the props between yeah, between a retake and all that, which, of course, we learned we, was, we didn't have to really do, but people, nobody knew what was going on. It was 400 days before we were able to pull the cast back together and before we had everything together to pick up. We stopped with eight days left of film, and we could only get the cast for six. And not only that, it was an assistant director's nightmare, thankfully not mine. Kate Hudson was shooting for Apple at the time. She was on a TV show, truth be told. And uh, Apple let her go for six days. And Zach Braff was uh, doing a movie for Disney. They would not let him go. So we had to shoot Zach on a weekend. We had to take all the Zach scenes and push them into the last weekend. Divine Joy Randolph could not be there. She was off shooting something else and was previously committed. AJ Naomi King was nine months pregnant. She couldn't travel. We were shooting outside of Los Angeles. We were shooting in Redlands. And she, so we shot a body double. And then later when she was, had the baby and everything later, a couple months later, I went back to LA and we shot her on a green screen and stuck her in the movie because she had a couple of really key moments at the end of the film. She shows up and without that scene, nothing else makes sense. Losing Divine, her character, Delta Jones, meant that a couple of the scenes I had to rewrite a couple of scenes and also there's one scene that we shot anyway that she's not there in the scene. The scene, I, to my mind, lost a little energy because she's such a presence on screen. But you know what? I think we have a really good film and I'm really happy with it. People are really liking it and it's finally coming out, which is great. Were you able to start some of the post-production during the shutdown or did, were you just completely hands-off? You can do... The editing remotely now, amazing software. I was sitting at this desk w with an editor. I'd used two editors on it. One of them was upstate New York. The other one was in Los Angeles. We could work on the same screen, which is like totally cool. I spent time with both of them. I'm sure I spent time, personal time with the editors to, I think those personal connections are really important. But we, yeah, so that, that was fine. We were, yeah, we're, my family was still isolating here and Connecticut and everybody was in their own place. And um, so we got the edit done. It took a lot longer than, I think it took more, a lot longer than if I'd actually just been sitting in the room the entire time. Also, I like to edit myself. I like to turn the knobs and do all it. I went back to LA and did the sound and color and all of that. Spent a couple of weeks in LA doing that. And then it took a while to get the film out. It took a while to deliver it. Things were calm. I think that the COVID delay caused a break in, in, I don't know, some of the stuff that I don't have anything to do with, honestly. When were you finally able to see the whole thing together? Probably last summer I had it. And then there was the question of a distributor and trying to sell, trying to sell the film, which again, is not anything I have anything to do with. I don't know how that goes. I don't know how certain decisions were made. I don't know. It was told it was, it's hard to sell the film of our writers, some people with the computers and the marketing numbers. And I think, I think it's a film that doesn't neatly fit into a category. It's a comedy. I think there is a rom-com element to it, but it sure as hell not a rom-com. Not that there's anything wrong with rom-com. I can weep with the best of them and watch those movies. How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. Love that. I've watched all of Kate's movies before, and I've watched, actually watched with the actors I try to 
the main actors. I tried to watch all, all their stuff before. It's just because all actors have quirks, I and mean, you just got to know what they are. But I really, I, but I don't think this movie is not a rom com by any means. There's calm, but there isn't a lot of rom, and and although there's there's literary obsession, which is a world I know really well. I know the literary world. I just got back from the Savannah Book Festival yesterday. I was in Savannah, Georgia, book festival. I was with my wife, and we're walking around, and we would just point out things to each other that are like straight out of the movie. I showed the film last spring. We actually run a writer's conference in Positano, Italy every year called Sirenland. We're bringing 40, 40 writers and 40 writing students mostly, but some of them are, they're all writers, and for A-list writer teachers. And we bring everybody to what is maybe the nicest hotel in the world, and we spend a week there writing and eating and drinking and talking about literature. And I showed the film to that group of people, and they do a laughing all over the place because they go oh, there's some inside jokes there's stuff there that may go over your head if if you don't know writers or hang around with the writers would go to but that, that's a pretty good population of people in this country and one of the one of the kind of funny lessons in the film that goes on is that everybody wants to be a writer everybody's got a novel and everybody in the film who Schreiber runs into say trying to press on a manuscript into his hands and one there's a line I wrote in there that's really something that my wife is a very well-known writer. The eyes every day the UPS truck drives up the driveway and people are sending manuscripts and or and galleys and things because they want blurbs on the back. She's just on a moratorium on blurbing. You want you like to help young writers, but on the one hand, on the other hand, is can't just keep doing it. But a writer walks up to Schreiber and says, hey, "Could you just write something? In fact, I could even just write it myself." And we know that happens all the time. Writers say, "We'd love a level blurb from you. We know you're really busy." So if you don't mind, here's a few suggestions for things you could say. Word of God, I'm not making that. It's art and the business of art. That's what we've been talking about in terms of the movie today. And you can't separate them. And you make your compromises along the way. I think you. I think the making an independent film is really getting up every day and deciding what you can compromise on and what you can't. You can't do everything you want. And I, I know it's probably even true for big studio films. If you've got a $50 million budget, I'm sure there's a lot of stuff you want to do that you can't do. I mean, you've got $100 million budget, and I'm short Jesus. I really like to, I don't know, I don't ever plan to direct a $100 million film. I'll keep it in. This is a good budget range. I like it. Had you worked with actors before your first feature? No, but I watch a lot of movies. It's, yeah, there's that ad, or yeah, no, but I've seen directors on TV. Like Day for Night, that Truffaut's film about, about, an, about a director is one of my favorite films. I've watched it 50 times. So I learned a lot from that, and it's very accurate about what it's like. My mentor as a director in all of this, a man who my wife and I and his wife went out to dinner with every Sunday night for more than a decade, was a man named Milos Forman. I have heard of him. Yeah, he's gotten around. And Milos, I actually have a videotape I took of Milos um, asking him about what he what advice he would give me. We had talked a lot about directing, and I'd been with him. But Milos had this phrase, Milos said to me, and I won't try to do his, accent, his Czech accent, because it sounded so much better in his Czech accent than, I, than it will when I say it. He said, don't talk to the actors too much. You'll just confuse their heads. Okay, I tried. That was more like Arnold Schwarzenegger than Czech. You know what I'm saying? Milos, his point was, it's all on the casting. You've, get, you've got to cast the right people. And you've got to trust that they understand the role, that they will understand, read 
because you're agreeing to be in your movie, agree, understand the roles, and they'll they'll bring it. They'll do what they do best. We had a table read for it, and I had one table read with the whole cast, and then I had a separate table read a little bit later with just me, Mike, and Kate, the three of us, uh, going over stuff about the relationship between those two characters, and we talked out a lot of stuff. And but beyond that, there were co- I can I just remember the times I talked to actors about scenes and what they were going to do. I talked to Don Johnson about fine tuning his character. The character that Don ends up playing in the film is a little different from the character I had in mind, but it was clear that Don wanted to do it another way. He read it a different way, and I pushed him a little bit one way, but he but he played that, and he played the kind of wannabe poet guy who's been teaching English for years at this college pretty well, and he did it in his own way, and I, don't, I, I think I changed his performance a little bit in terms of the, his, my take on the character. I had one talk with Mike about there's I think one of my favorite scenes in the film is when Michael when Shriver Michael Shannon is reading the excerpt from his own book. I wrote a chunk of the book myself to try to understand the Shriver character and I took a walk with Mike and before we shot the scene and then I said I just want to tell you a story I'm not going to tell you how to do it but this I was reading an article once and at a certain point in reading the article, I had a weird, funny feeling. Something just started to come to me, and I thought, I think I, wrote, I think somebody played. I think I wrote this. Some it's this, just a paragraph in the middle of this piece. And I went back through some of my early clips, and sure enough, someone had changed a lot of the words. It wasn't exactly what I wrote, but I'd gotten plagiarized. And changing the adjectives didn't change that for me. And I think every writer has their own take on that. You have a signature style. So I said, as he starts to read, he's going to start to feel familiar with the writing. That's all. I, that's, but that's really real. And I left it at that. And then he was brilliant. I love him in everything that he does. And he just always gives such a great performance. And I love this where he gets to play slightly comic, but then the scenes of him speaking to himself, those are gold. Yeah, those, well, that was risky, I thought, to do that. But I think it really worked. I wasn't prepared if it didn't work to cut all those scenes out. But I thought, but I ended up thinking it, it, it was really important. And I, I think it really worked. We shot those with me reading against Mike. And so I was a little nervous about doing that because I'm no actor, but I did my best. Yeah. And it is comic and it's very subtly comic and a lot of it's in the timing. I think he's got great comic timing. And and he's a straight man through a lot of it, but he's really, he's really funny. He's really funny doing that. The young woman who plays the hotel clerk, it's a small role, but I think she's terrific. And there's a couple of exchanges they have that I just think are great. And they're short and they're to the point, but they play off each other really nicely. And the other thing you want to say about Michael Shannon, and I've been on enough film sets, he's the most generous actor I've ever seen on a film set. I've seen actors when it's not their coverage, when they're acting, but the camera's on the other, I suppose your listeners know this, honey, camera's on the other actor kind of hold back because they, they, they save the really, I'm going to nail, hammer this home for, for when the camera's on them. Michael brought it with every performance. When the camera would be on, an, on, on another actor, he would still, he still just laid it all out there and gave the other actors everything they needed to work with. And a lot of actors do that, but they give 90%. Like Mike, Michael gave 100% every time. And Kate Hudson, she just seems so effortless in the way that she acts. Just it feels like 
she just walked onto the set and just started. Yeah. Yeah. When she did kind of, Kate's a total pro. She, she was perfect in the role. I never seen any, her do anything quite like this before. It, there isn't a lot of comedy coming out of her there, but she's, she's so key to everything else that's, go, that's going on around. And you just really believe her. And she's a writer who's stuck teaching creative writing at this shitty college. You believe every moment of that. That look with all of her acting, and I, I would be standing there on on set, just watching her, going like, "Wow!" And and that kind of final semi-final scene with when she and Michael are walking away from the gazebo after the whole thing with the cops and everything else goes down. I just that moment is perfect. But both she and Mike are great. Both she and Mike would, be, if I was happy with something, I, Michael more than Kate, but Kate did it too. Where they'd go, "Hold off! I want to do this again." Michael would just put a finger up in the air and he would just go one more time when I was, because I'm thinking, yeah, how is the, the assistant director is, is looking at me, just tapping his watch like, and Michael's one more and I'll go, all right, we're going again. We're going again. Keep rolling and let's go. And there was all that tension on, on set time and people like that. And I think we had a great set. I think I do my best to, I've learned, I learned that from me and a couple of other sets I've been on is the director has a lot, the directing style kind of filters down through everything. And. That's really a big part of the job. Just for it, just I made sure I knew the names of the grips and everybody else on the set. I didn't second, third day in there. I just was, I'm bad at people's names, generally speaking, but just trying to create a really good atmosphere because it, it's independent film is shot under a ton of pressure. It has taken you more than eight years for this to come to fruition. Yeah. And I'm sure it's changed a lot throughout the years and just the ideas have had to change and you talked about how you couldn't have everybody on set all when you wanted to, but ultimately for me as a viewer, it all comes together. It all feels very seamless and it just, it was a very satisfying film. That's the idea, isn't it? All those pieces and on and the match cutting from something, something you shot 400 days earlier. But it worked. And I think every, everybody believed in the project. Everybody had a good time. I think we, there was a real sense of accomplishment when we wrapped that film that where our last filming day was nearly 24 hours. We ended at four o'clock in the morning having shot that restaurant scene and people were wiped out. And the idea was we were going to go back and have a wrap party. And then that didn't happen. Everybody was asleep. What happens with the movie now? It's a VOD, DVD, those kind of things? Uh, it's, it's theaters right now. It's opening in selected theaters, I believe, is the nomenclature, meaning it's probably not playing at a theater near you. It's playing in New York, it's playing in Los Angeles, it's playing in some major metropolitan areas, but at the same time, it's available on VOD. And, and yeah, it's, it, and then eventually it'll end up on a streamer, but I don't know. Again, that's, nobody asked my opinion about any of that. I've got new projects. I'm, I'm doing everything I can. I love this movie and I want people to see it. You can't rest. It's business. You've got a, I've got two books I'm looking at, one of them for TV series off here. I've got a, a, a screenplay I am. I'm past deadline on that, that I need to turn in for another director. Nieszka Holland, the Polish director, is directing it and I'm running a script based on a book that my wife wrote. Oh, wow. So that's all, that's all coming together. And, and I've got another script that I, need to finish and I'd like to be directing it by next fall. We'll see if that can happen. I know I'm given the amount of time that it takes to assemble something like this, but I'm, I'm hoping that's, that A Little White Lie gets enough love and that people will, uh, you know, it'll, that it'll get a little easier this time. But you know what? It doesn't. It never gets easier. How is that adapting your own wife's work? It seems like a surefire 
case for divorce. Yeah, I. She also writes screenplays to the novelist mostly, and this book is a memoir. The one I'm adopting is called Inherit. Memoir is called Inheritance, and I wrote. Actually, what happened was the producers hired a screenwriter to write it, and the script didn't do much. And it was during COVID, and I was home from I was home. I didn't know what else I was going to be doing, and so now let me take a whack at it. I just and I do it for fun. So I, I turned the script around, and the script atta- attracted Agnieszka Holland, who wanted to direct. But Agnieszka said she wanted she had some changes she wanted in the film. So I said, "All right, I'll do that." Then they hired me to do to make those changes. So I'm now getting paid to do the script, which is good because we like. And so my wife understands that I need to make stuff up and change stuff and streamline stuff and leave off good stuff, leave out good stuff to, to make the story work. She's just adapted, she just adapted a, a, another novelist book and she had to do the same thing there. And she heard, she's got a novel she's written since then that, that she just wrote the pilot for. And we work together on all this stuff and we read each other's work and it's, I'm her in-house editor, she's my in-house editor. Ideally, one couple is a lawyer earning a good salary, and the other one's the one who's just taking chances and trying to write stuff. But she's not a lawyer, and I'm not either. So we do okay. Mr. Marin, is there a good place for people to keep up with you and your work? My, the main place I put stuff out is Instagram, which is at mmarin, A-R-E-N. I have stuff from the film up there. I have stills from the film up put there. When I had cancer, I did a whole photo project because my mind was too adult to actually write. Uh, and that's all further down on my feed. That's probably the best place, I would say. MichaelMarin.com will get you to my website, but I don't really do anything with that anymore. It's, no, people don't go to websites anymore. Mr. Marin, thank you so much for your time. This was so nice talking with you. Oh, great. I've enjoyed this. It's been fun, and thank you for help spreading the word on this movie. It's not. There's no advertising budget, really. I don't think you're going to see ads for it on TV shows or anything like that. So it's got it's got to be word of mouth or letterboxed or Rotten Tomatoes or wherever you get your your people ranting about movies. Well, hopefully we'll get a few more eyes on this. Hey, I appreciate it. Thanks very much, Fun.
Someday. 